Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Hi, this is Oz Davis, host of Truly the Goats, hoping you're coping during this pandemic. Just wanted to give a quick heads up that due to the recent difficulties in scheduling interviews during this crisis, we had to call an audible for this episode. So the subject for Truly the Goats episode three, this episode will not be Raiden, Hakuho, and sumo wrestling, but rather Angelo Mosk, star of Canadian football, professional wrestling. Part two of Angelo's story will drop a day or two after this one. We hope to be able to produce the original episode three of Truly the Goats and have it out to you soon. In the meantime, enjoy the story of Angelo Mosca, greatest heel of all time. Stay healthy. In 1995, an aspiring 22-year-old known to his University of Miami Hurricanes teammates as Dewey was on a path familiar to American football players who don't crack an NFL roster, but one that rarely leads to international superstardom. Dewey was trying out for the Calgary Stampeders of the Canadian Football League. Despite having started just one game in four years with the Hurricanes and subsequently going undrafted by an NFL team, those in Stampeders camp had to love what they saw. Twenty years later, Dewey would self-deprecatingly refer to himself in his CFL days as looking like a, quote, hungry nightmare and, quote, chunky at 6'5 and 280 pounds. He would be one of the biggest defensive linemen in the league at that time. But the most notable aspect of Dewey the Hungry Nightmare remained the same as it had since his high school playing days, what scouts and sportcasters alike refer to as intangibles. He was a third-generation, top-level athlete with a work ethic that was off the charts and a larger-than-life personality. His defensive line coach at Miami recalled in a 2012 ESPN story online that Dewey was, quote, a hard worker and a humble young man. Everybody liked him. He was easily coachable, and everybody was impressed with him, unquote. The Stampeders equipment manager later told the Globe and Mail newspaper, quote, you could see that he had a charisma. He had that dazzling smile even back at that point, unquote. A former Stampeders teammate went even further, saying that Dewey was, quote, like a Greek god, and that, quote, all the wives loved him. Dewey was obviously destined for greatness, even all-time greatness but that greatness would not happen in the CFL. Dewey stayed with the Stampeders as a practice squad player for four weeks before leaving Calgary to pursue his fallback career in professional wrestling. There, he gave up the nickname of his football-playing days for one which paid tribute to his father, The Rock. By the time he retired from wrestling in 2016, Dwayne The Rock Johnson had won a record-setting 17 titles over 15 years in the WWE. His outstanding charisma and physique served him so well, transcending wrestling itself to raise Vince McMahon's entire enterprise to ever greater levels of fan obsession worldwide. Truly, 
The Rock is the greatest professional wrestler of all time. But this episode of True of the Goats isn't about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It's about Angelo King Kong Mosca, a man who chose the CFL over the NFL, went on to win five Grey Cup championships, joined the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and to be named a top five defensive lineman ever to play in the league. And like Dewey, Mosca turned to professional wrestling after his CFL career, sometimes performing under the nickname King Kong. After just about a decade of wrestling in Canada, Mosca was brought to the burgeoning World Wrestling Federation in 1981, a league just about to explode in national popularity. There, he leveraged a similar set of intangibles, not at all identical, but similar, to the Rocks. For the first half of the 80s, Mosca was consistently a top-rated contender in the league and easily the most hated heel in wrestling. Though he never did win a WWF title, for some reason the league's brain trust still preferred the rather colorless Bob Backlund as world champion for many years. In his characterization of the bad guy, his influence may still be seen in the elaborate show of 21st century professional wrestling. For his domination and legendary feats in two sports, we can call Angelo Mosca an all-time great athlete. If we call wrestling a sport. So, is it? My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats. Sports history as told through its superstars. The most famous, most viralist Canadian football-related YouTube clip ever doesn't have game highlights, head coach meltdowns, or even a top 10 all-time list. What it does have is two 70-plus-a-year-old men in a physical altercation over a single play in a football game played nearly half a century before. In an event held in Vancouver prior to the 99th Grey Cup Championship game in 2011, two CFL legends who played against each other in the 51st Grey Cup, also played in Vancouver, are introduced. Everyone there knows about what happened between Angelo Mosca's Hamilton Tiger Cats and Joe Cap's BC Lions in that game. Most probably figured there might still be bad blood between the two, but certainly none of them could have guessed what would happen next. From a YouTube video that has racked up nearly 900,000 views in eight years, here's the audio from that bit of the clip that was played on ESPN, not to mention on nationwide news in two countries, like extremely few CFL clips ever have or will. I'm 
Visually, the most interesting part of the clip is what happens after Mosca suggests that Cap insert the bouquet into a major bodily orifice. But Mosca isn't sure if the audience heard the quip expected of the former most hated player in the CFL. He's checking to see if his mic is on. Meanwhile, Cap is sure the audience has heard. He's been dissed and does not appreciate what he sees as the crowd turning against him. That's when he gets in Mosca's face and the scuffle ensues. But the most interesting part of the audio? After the laughter audibly turns to shock and the dust-up ends about as quickly as it began, you can hear somebody saying, It's real. (laughs) It's real. This comes back again and again when talking about Angelo Mosca, a guy who created his own legend, his own reality, his own backstory in whatever he did. Meanwhile, back in Vancouver, Mosca, having swung his cane awkwardly at Cap's head, has gone down, fallen off a small stage area, and is getting helped back up to his feet. It's just that my legs aren't the best anymore, he'd later explain in interviews. Cap could care less. He wants to win the crowd back, having knocked down the heel for a three count. He seems to want to give a neat justification for his intentions, which were even larger than his actions. So he roars to the crowd like a professional wrestler would. Sportsmanship! <laughs> Did you hear the glasses clinging after, that's what it's all about? As though Cap were proposing a toast? Canadians are awesome. In a lot of ways, what has become commonly known as the Mosca and Cap dust-up was a perfect bit of punctuation on both his sports careers. Though later he apologized for the incident and expressed regrets over it, in the end, how else should the greatest heel of all time have reacted? One may question the character of Angelo Mosca, the big nasty, but the consistency and commitment to that character is beyond reproach. For this episode of True to the Goats, I spoke with Travis Curra, producer and co-host of the award-winning Two and Out CFL podcast. Travis's love of Canadian football is nearly matched by his devotion to that strange spectacle known as professional wrestling. When I contacted Travis to be interviewed for this episode, he guessed we'd be talking about Angela Mosca and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, two of modern sports' most well-known American-Canadian crossovers, and certainly the biggest CFL football pro-wrestling crossovers. He guessed correctly. Travis Curra, thanks for joining us here on Truly the Goats. Hey, thanks for having me. What did Angelo have that he could become a successful wrestler and a successful Canadian football player, but The Rock could not? When you look at The Rock, you're like, he has everything. I mean, (laughs) what does The Rock not have? I'm not saying that The Rock didn't have any adversity growing up, because it's the famous story he tells that... He left Calgary with $6 in his pocket, and he goes to wrestle. And he's he's got that as his backup plan. But his, his grandfather wrestled. His father wrestled. It, it was, like, in his blood. And Moscow was on his own. He, he had a tough upbringing in Massachusetts where he left home at 16, and he found a way to lie his way out of situations. He was very ashamed of his heritage because that's how he was brought up. His father made him ashamed of his African-American and Italian 
heritage where the rock i think had sort of that strong family system around him so mosca kind of learned on his own growing up uh being able to tell lies sell himself i i feel like Moscow was probably, especially when it came to wrestling, was able to think on his feet a little bit more. Like in the modern age, it's a lot more scripted than even people would like to say. Like back then, it was like the end of the match was figured out and that was it. You were on your own to figure out absolutely everything else. So I would say that Mosca had this platform that he took to wrestling and the rock had like the exact opposite wrestling became his platform before he went to movies where football was Mosca's platform before he went to wrestling and he was just nasty on the field. I, I don't know if rock had the same tenacity that Mosca did. He had a tough time growing up. He had to fight for absolutely everything uh, that he ever had and he was able to take that aggression to the football field which also translated well to the wrestling ring uh it, it's a really fascinating conversation to you know <laughs> talk down the rock because the highest paid man in hollywood the most successful wrestler of all time or at least one of them and i think mosca just had that street sense that gave him success in wrestling and football. Check out the Wikipedia entry for Angelo Mosca. At first glance, it looks like the typical entry afforded a sports star or a celebrity. The opening summary paragraph tells us that he was born in Waltham, Massachusetts on February 13, 1937. It tells us that he was known for his careers in CFL football and professional wrestling, that he sometimes wrestled under the aliases King Kong Mosca and Mighty Hercules, that he has a son, who has also done some professional wrestling. Finally, there's a brief listing of a handful of halls of fame to which Angelo has been inducted. In the right hand, sidebar runs a list of his football achievements, all-star nominations, Grey Cup wins, and the like. In both this margin and the main text, all the requisite bolding and internal links are there. There are no odd typos, no citation-needed markers. Everything in this entry looks perfectly normal. Until... You scroll past the table of contents and into the entry itself and, wait a minute, you think, that can't be right. So you scroll back up and back down again, but you haven't made a mistake. As of this recording, the entry for Angelo Mosca on Wikipedia has no section entitled Early Life or even College. It's as though the Wikipedia version of Angelo Mosca emerged fully formed somewhere just outside of Hamilton, ready to play football with the defending CFL champion Tiger Cats. Given his actual early life growing up in Waltham, Massachusetts, Angelo probably prefers the Wikipedia version. In fact, throughout his career in the CFL, Mosca was constantly adding to his own legend, albeit for reasons that maybe not even he understood, and that wouldn't be revealed to anyone until decades after his careers in both sports ended, in 2011, when his autobiography was published. He'd tell tall tales of wisdom that his father had shared with him, he'd exaggerate his high school football exploits, not that he had to very much, and he just generally embellished the story of Angelo Mosca in order to reconstruct a past that he could live with. And the CFL beat writers ate it up, with no guilt felt by Mosca. 
They could have looked into it if they'd wanted to, he later insisted. Moscow's autobiography is entitled, Tell Me to My Face. It's one serious page-turner of a book that reads like a combination of Ralph Ellison and Jim Bouton. We'll try not to crib too much of Tell Me to My Face for this episode, but it's tempting to simply read pages of this literal tell-all book full of insight, humor, and revelations, including the secret that Angela kept the secret to virtually everyone for over 55 years of his adult life, that his mother was half African-American. In stark contrast to his Wikipedia entry, and essentially every informational entry and reference material prior to 2011, Tell Me to My Face is chock full of facts on the real Angela Mosca, starting right from paragraph one, where we learn that Angela's father, a Sicilian immigrant who'd come to America with wife and six kids in tow, was, quote, a mean fucking man, a real prick. He was also a drunk and a bigot. This is from the book's first three sentences. Soon thereafter, we learn that Angela's mother was an agoraphobic alcoholic, half meek and half mild, as Angela puts it, who enjoyed seeing Mosca Sr. beating on his young son because it meant her husband wouldn't be beating on her. This is revealed on page two of the autobiography, and it's pointedly clear at this point why Angela would seek to shroud himself in personal myth publicly. Angelo soon learned how to lie. By the time he was 13, Angelo had finally figured out why his father continually called him and his siblings little black sons of bitches and the like. And growing up in the blue-collar, racially prejudiced Waltham of the 1950s meant that he'd have to lie to schoolmates, authority figures, even cousins. It's very hard to go your entire life lying, Mosca wrote. I just couldn't tell people about it because I'd been so drilled not to. My father and my mother made me ashamed of my heritage and myself. I had this secret inside of me and couldn't let it out because I was scared of how the reality might change. Angelo soon found out, as do many of America's marginalized, that it was possible to make one's own reality within the boundaries of sports. And the sport for Angelo was obvious. Going into ninth grade, he was six foot three and 215 pounds by his own estimates. The football coaches essentially recruited him to attend to practice. For the 14-year-old, football was a revelation. From the very first hit in practice, I was sold, he wrote. I loved every minute of physical contact. When I look back on it, the physical contact was probably a way for me to retaliate and get back against my father. He also noted that I loved the game, and I liked the idea of having responsibility on the field and to my team. He also made the varsity basketball team. Imagine trying to handle a guy like that under the boards. But it was always about football for Angelo. By the time Angelo was a senior in high school, he developed a regimen of weightlifting and distance running of up to 11 miles a day, a good 40 years before such training was the standard in American sports. The workouts he combined with football practice and games, basketball practice and games, plus work at the cement block factory or police station. He'd moved out of his toxic home environment, not so much running away from home as simply walking out on apathetic parents to move in with an aunt. In high school, Moscow was about as deadly a force as you'd imagine a 215-pound kid with lots of aggression and a love for the physical contact in contact sports would be. He was named State All-Scholastic three times in his four years. Waltham coach Joe Zeno called him, quote, the greatest schoolboy lineman I've ever coached, unquote. And crucial to Moscow's development was his line coach at Waltham, Tony Zulo, 
Mosca described Zulo's coaching philosophy as, quote, kill or be killed, and said of him, Tony taught me to use my hands effectively without holding. I had developed really quick hands that I used for the head slaps. They became a huge part of my style in the CFL. And a lot of my success in the CFL, I owe to Tony Zulo. Ah, the head slap. For those of you too young to remember, and hey, I'm Generation X and I don't even remember. The head slap was a move that was exactly what it sounds like. After being used by generations of football players from Jim Thorpe to Deacon Jones, the head slap ultimately became frowned upon as a not illegal, but not exactly showing, what's the word? Sportsmanship! Right, sportsmanship. The head slap was considered unsporting even in the 1970s, wild decade in international sports. The CFL made the play illegal in 1974. The NFL outlawed it in 77. Of course, Mosca had gotten far more than the head slap while playing for Zeno and Zulo at Waltham High. He also got some 60 scholarship offers from college football programs across the country, including that most storied of all programs, Notre Dame. At that time, college football players were only allowed three years of eligibility, so Angelo spent his first season doing little more by his estimation than facing off against the starters on the practice squad. As he put it, quote, Football and religion were everything, unquote, at Notre Dame. Going into the 1956 season, Mosca would be a starter on the defensive line, one of 12 sophomore starters led by Bronco Nagurski Jr. for the Fighting Irish that season. American sports media outlets almost universally agreed that Notre Dame's freshman class for 56 was one of the best ever seen. The season did not bear out this supposition, however. Despite Paul Hornung's Heisman Trophy winning season, the Irish were a stunning 2-8 in 1956, perhaps the worst record ever turned in by a Notre Dame football team. In the meantime, Angelo had somehow found time to meet Indiana University student Darlene Goodrich that season, and the two were soon married. While this was certainly very whirlwind romantic, the young couple's marriage also meant Mosca's scholarship was terminated. Notre Dame didn't offer athletic scholarships to married men. Not exactly helping his case, was his getting caught at running poker games. So, Angelo transferred to the University of Wyoming after considering Georgia, between them two of the original five dozen schools that had wooed him with scholarship offers two years previous. Wyoming set Angelo and his wife up very nicely and very illegally. The university was straight up giving the Moscas $1,200 a month cash, worth about $11,000 a month in 2020 money, in addition to arranging a full-time job for Darlene. But for both the Cowboys and the Moscas, the arrangement wouldn't last. In fact, Angelo never played a single down for Wyoming. Together with an acquaintance he described as, quote, having more money than brains, unquote, the two had entered into a racket selling a much-desired cutting-edge technology on campus, typewriters. Shortly before the season, Angelo's partner was busted, turned evidence on him. Angelo spent five days in jail, went before a judge, pled not guilty, was found guilty, and got a one-year suspended sentence. This gave him an opportunity to act on a contract deal arranged by a friend of his to play for the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. Now, this may seem like a strange choice today, but in the late 1950s, with a criminal record in the U.S., it was more than a viable option. It was the best option. In Angelo's case, 
the money was more in Canada. And the big thing was is that the Canadian dollar was worth more. So back wow. in, the, in the 50s, a lot of guys would come to Canada because the dollar is worth 10 cents more than the U.S. dollar. That doesn't happen now. And a, a wrinkle back then as well was that a player couldn't get drafted into the NFL if he still had college eligibility left. So Angelo got booted out of Notre Dame because he ended up getting married. He transferred to Wyoming. He had some legal trouble there, but he still had another year or two of college eligibility. So he went up to play in Canada. By the time the Eagles drafted him, he was already with the Ticats for a year. And he figured, oh, I'm just going to stay here. They're paying me okay. And Canada is sort of where it's at right now. And Mosca made Hamilton his home. Angelo Mosca certainly did make Hamilton his home. To this day, Mosca has lived in the Hamilton area. He currently resides in St. Catharines. Among his first impressions with the city were, quote, I was told not to touch anything in the north end of the city. The north side was supposed to be full of old houses and bad neighborhoods, but right away I liked it. It was a rugged part of town, but full of good people, unquote. For this episode of Truly the Goats, I also spoke with Josh Smith, resident of Hamilton, Ontario, for nearly his entire life. Josh is the host of the Tiger Cat-centered podcast, Podski Wee Wee. It's a Hamilton thing. As well as the movie review podcast, The 13th Floor. Josh is also a huge fan of wrestling. There seems to be this tremendous crossover between CFL fandom and wrestling fandom. Perhaps I should have asked him about that. Anyway, when I requested an interview with Josh for the show, he said, he's always happy to talk about Big Ange. Josh Smith, thanks for joining us on True of the Goats. Oh, thanks for having me, man. We tend to romanticize these gritty towns in which football players play, both in the NFL and the CFL. But you read Mosca's biography, and Hamilton sounded like a pretty, let's say, rough-and-tumble place in the late 50s, early 60s. What kind of a city is Hamilton? How is it now? How is it then? Well, the Steel Town moniker was very fitting for a very long time. The, our biggest industry here were the two steel factories, Stelco and DeFasco, that pretty much you had a member of your family, whether it was your parents or your aunts and uncles or your grandparents. Someone in your family worked at one of the two steel factories, and that sort of informed what the city was, that blue-collar, uh, very Pittsburgh-like, to give an American example, a Pittsburgh-like sort of vibe to the city uh, – Grimy, but not in a bad way, but just like very blue collar, very lunch pail. You know, people went to work, did their job, came home. But tough would be another way I think you could describe it. I still think those attributes are here in, in 2020, but there's definitely been a switch away from that sort of industry. And there's a lot more modernization in the city nowadays. I think there'll be a lot of people who, if you haven't been to Hamilton for, you know, even 10 years, you would come here and visit and it would be completely different. There's a, a thriving arts community, a booming restaurant community. There's uh, technological innovations. There's more in, the, in terms of medicine happening here in Hamilton now than there would have been 40, 50, 60 years ago. But I think the city nowadays sort of encompasses both because it's been instilled in us from generations past. There's still that blue collar lunch pail mentality mixed with sort of this new vibrant modern sort of uh, feel 
And I think it's made Hamilton to be quite the interesting place to live, grow up, and, and now live as an adult. During the spring of 1958, Angelo picked up work in the steel mill, where some 20,000 others were employed. In doing a little publicity for himself, he was already building up a name in Canadian football circles. But a couple of weeks in a training camp, Angelo was informed that he'd actually have to earn a spot on the CFL champion Tiger Cats roster. For then, as now, CFL teams are limited to a strict ratio of American to Canadian players. And that year, the Ticats would be able to take on 11 more Americans of the 30 trying out. Naturally, Angelo adapted quickly and again lived up by line coach Zulo's U.S. Marine Corps axiom, killer be killed. I did a few sneaky things, he writes, because not making the team simply wasn't an option. In drills and scrimmage, I would purposely blow offside and completely bury my opponent. Another way to cheat that I think most players used was that in the CFL, you had to play a yard off the ball. But if you were good, you could line up three quarters of a yard off the ball. This allowed you to get up under the guy's face. Despite his already growing reputation in Canada, Angelo Mosca was far from becoming a sports icon, much less a Hamilton folk hero. In fact, by kickoff 1958, Angelo was up to some old tricks. He'd learned where the high-stakes card games were, who the bootleggers that sold drinks after legally mandated 11 p.m. closing time were, and if you think the same old habits would end up the same old way for Angelo Mosca, well, you're probably right. In interest of transparency, I'd like to give some full disclosure before getting any deeper into the story of Angelo Mosca, defensive lineman. I love Canadian football. I love the differences from the American rules, the occasional kicking play that harkens back to football's origins in rugby. I love the wider and longer field of play, the recycling of head coaches, and the season kicking off in June. I've loved the game since I was a kid growing up in northern New England in the late 1970s, trying to watch a game broadcast from some tiny Sherbrooke, Quebec station, staring dangerously close to the TV, according to my parents, so as to see past the snow and through to the game. I mean the snow from the poor transmission, not necessarily the snow on the field. In those days, NFL almanacs and preview guides might spare a few pages in the back for the CFL, allowing American sports fans to read and wonder about teams with exotic-sounding names like Argonauts and Blue Bombers and Rough Riders and, well, Rough Riders. I loved Canadian pro football through the 1990s and the disastrous CFL-USA experiment. In the 21st century, from across the Atlantic and Europe, I watched through dodgy live streams, and today I dig the CFL, even though the rarity of information is no longer a problem, and so many options in sports are available. And you know what? I love CFL more than NFL football. But please, allow me to be absolutely, definitively clear here. I do not believe that CFL football is superior to NFL football, or that the CFL's players are better than the NFL's. As so many CFL devotees end up telling NFL fans, it's pretty much a different game altogether. Can you explain in brief some of the very simple, very obvious differences between the Canadian football game and the American football game? Well, there's three downs. Uh, the field is longer and wider uh, there's no fair catch and when the offenses and defenses line up the defense has to give a yard off the ball so 
to put it as simply as possible, I would say that the Canadian game is more of a finesse and speed game, while the American game is more power and leverage. Like offensive linemen, they need to use different uh, footwork because of the different angle with uh, the defensive linemen already getting a yard to explode into their faces. Defensive backs, they uh, need to put up with receivers because they get running starts. There's unlimited motion. Uh, Linebackers in Canada, they need to cover more. They need to be lighter and smaller and able to keep up with the receivers. So yeah, you need to be able to run a little bit more in Canada just because of the wide open nature of the field and the game itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the knock or at least the perception in America on the CFL is often that, oh, these are just guys that are too small to play in American football, but you could look at it the other way and say, well, being slightly smaller is an advantage in the Canadian game. Yeah, you could say a guy's too big to play in Canada. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Because some, you look at some, the defensive linemen in Canada, some of those guys, they might play, say, linebacker in the States. Because if there's a big, you know, 275-pound linebacker, whatever they are, 260 or something like that, he is not going to be able to cover a receiver that gets a running start at you. It's just not physically possible to be able to do that. They're just... They're completely different games. Like, at the very sense of it, football is football. I get that. But they're a lot different, and they take a different athlete. Oh, and by the way, the CFL no longer has two teams named the Rough Riders. But when they did, Angelo Mosca helped them win a great cup. That was in 1960 with the Ottawa Rough Riders. Led on offense by quarterback Russ Jackson and on defense by their new acquisition. Faced off against the Edmonton Eskimos in Vancouver. In a game dominated by defense, Ottawa had the ball and a commanding 16-6 lead with 41 seconds remaining. This was in the days before the kneel down. So, fans spilled out on the field in the final minute of the game and chaos ultimately won out over order. We may never finish this ball game... Because they are now out on the field trying to knock down the goalposts and they have stolen the football, too. Imagine that happening anywhere in North America today. Well, there is now no crossbar at the north end of the field. And in a moment, there will be none at the south end. Now, Harry McBrien, representing Commissioner Halter, has gone out to speak with Seymour Wilson, the referee. The ball game is over. The ball game has been called off with 41 seconds left to go. And you can see what's happening now. And the Ottawa Rough Riders win their first Grey Cup championship since 1951 by beating the Edmonton Eskimos by 16.26. Dick Beddoes of the Vancouver Sun had quite the encounter in the locker room post-game. Angelo Mosca, huge and dark and nude, wandered through the crowded room collecting chin straps off a helmet. Somebody asked him how tough it had been, slugging along the line. Mosca scored and scratched. Easy, he said. I belted that Roger Nelson good on the first three plays. After that, it was easy. And no, I have no idea why he was collecting chin straps. The championship win was quite the surprising outcome for Mosca. He hadn't even wanted to play in Ottawa necessarily, and Hamilton management hadn't wanted to lose their up-and-coming superstar so early in his career necessarily. So why did it happen? Because of Hamilton. Today, 
Mosca claims that the Tiger Cat's front office was called by Hamilton police at least once a month to bail him out after a drunken disorderly. The last straw may have been when Mosca sent a 260-pound guy tumbling down a flight of stairs. On that occasion, head coach Jim Trimble refused to bail out Mosca as per usual. With a week and a half before the 1960 season, Mosca was traded to Ottawa. Trimble told him, I don't want to trade you, but we've got to straighten you out. I've got to get you off these streets. And so, Mosca won the first of his Grey Cup titles in Ottawa, rather than the city he'd grown to love. He played one more season in Ottawa. In 1961, the Rough Riders managed a record of just 8-6 and six and were crushed by the Toronto Argonauts 49-13 in their sole playoff game that year. Mosca had a decent enough season, but his best play of the year may have been made in November after season's end. A bogus bill passer tackled last week by Ottawa Rough Rider Angelo Mosca after attempting to pass a fake bill was sentenced yesterday to two years in Kingston Penitentiary. Mosca, lineman with the Riders, tackled the passer as he fled from a store after proprietor Joe Murray noticed the bill handed him was a fake. Despite his superheroics in Ottawa, Mosca was traded without forewarning to the Montreal Alouettes. Montreal went 4-7-3. and Gotta love Canadian football. In 1961, but made the East Division final which was played by a two-game aggregate score system. The Alouettes lost by two points total to who else but the Hamilton Tiger Cats, who would go on to lose to who else but the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the Grey Cup. But if getting his first CFL job was, as Angelo described it, the luckiest break I've ever gotten, the trade to Montreal may rank second most fortunate because a move to Montreal meant close proximity to Eddie Quinn, and Eddie Quinn was a professional wrestling promoter. Quinn had first contacted Mosca a few years prior in his Hamilton Tiger Cats days in an attempt to gauge the football player's interest in making money during the offseason. Said Angelo, quote, I don't want any part of that fake phony shit, unquote. Now that's certainly one of the most negative reactions to a support ever made by a future all-time great in that sport ever, if we can call wrestling a sport. But Moscow thought it over. Such a gig would probably beat a steel mill job in Hamilton, after all, and many... Former and current football players had a full-on career with Quinn. Dudes like Ernie Ladd, Blackjack Mulligan, Wahoo McDaniel. And then he thought about the money again and... Of course, Angelo enjoyed a second career in professional wrestling after his CFL career. And he started, while he was still playing football, mostly wrestling in Quebec. Yeah, there was a promoter there, Eddie Quinn, who really got Mosca into it and mosca wasn't into it at first um thought it was phony (laughs) didn't want anything to do with wrestling until he found out how much money he could make and he his first contract he signed with the tie cats was ten thousand dollars for the year with a twenty five hundred dollar signing bonus and that's mind-blowing that they were paying more than they already were in the United States. But when he started wrestling, he was making about $4,000 a month. <laughs> and he was able to keep all of that. So once he started wrestling, he was making himself a lot of cash. Uh, all over Canada, I mean, there was the territory in Quebec, there was the Maple Leaf wrestling in Toronto, and of course, Stampede wrestling in Western Canada. And the thing that helped Angelo out was that he already had a platform. He was well-known in Canada. So if he wanted to be the bad guy, 
Well, he was a bad guy everywhere except for Hamilton. So that really helped out his worth to the wrestling promoters. And he puts it, hey, it helped me stay in shape for football. And football helped me stay in shape for wrestling. The coaches weren't big fans of it. But he would say, hey, are you going to match my wrestling salary? And, of course, none of the coaches or general managers would do that for Angelo. So that's why he wrestled and played football at the same time. Mosca's first match took place in February 1960 in Montreal, where Quinn's wrestlers trained. Pro wrestling may not have been as huge an international phenomenon as it was today, but nevertheless, 10,000 were in attendance on a Monday night for his first bout in the ring. He was touted as the good guy against longtime Canadian heel Angelo the Vampire Savoldi. But he estimates about half the crowd booed him anyway. Even back in his early years of wrestling, before he'd taken on the King Kong Mosca moniker, his fellow wrestlers thought Angelo Mosca had great potential to be a classic heel, a possibility he relished, but one which couldn't quite be cemented until a certain play in the 1963 Grey Cup game. Mosca wrestled five times a week that first winter in Quebec. He continued that pace over the next year or two, making increasingly better money. On top of this, Angelo signed his most lucrative football contract yet in getting back to Hamilton, returning from three years in exile, as he titled the relevant chapter in his autobiography. And the 1962 Hamilton Tiger Cats mark of 9-4-1 was good enough to take the Eastern Conference title that year. They went on to win two games set with Montreal by 20 points and advanced to the Grey Cup which turned out to be one bizarre game that took 25 hours to resolve. Held in Toronto, the 1962 Grey Cup immediately became known as the Fog Bowl, with visibility on the field reduced to nothing. Angelo's Tiger Cats were facing off against their recent nemeses, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, for the fifth time in six years. A pair of mixed extra points by the Hamilton kicker, who reportedly could barely make out the goalposts, put the Tiger Cats down 28-27 with about nine and a half minutes left to play. And then... The fog is worse now than it has been all day. Hell Ledger's back in at quarterback now, Johnny. Here's the commissioner now with the secretary, Harry McBride. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they're going to have to decide to hold this for a while because it's now... That's right. The referees, in conjunction with team league officials, called the game and had it resumed the next day. Imagine that happening nowadays. Angelo and many of his teammates that night went out and enjoyed what was supposed to be the post-game party. On top of this, Hamilton will also be down to their third-string quarterback to compete the next day. On that day, with the fog lifted, the Tigers and Bombers played out the final nine and a half minutes of game time and scored a combined zero points. The Hamilton Tiger Cats had lost again. Angelo went back to the wrestling ring, participated in another 100-plus bouts in the offseason, and returned to training camp once again. For the Tiger Cats, Ralph Sazio had been promoted from defensive coordinated head coach. And while Mosca noted that Sazio was tough to play for, there is no questioning the man's defensive prowess. In 1963, the Tiger Cats went 10-4, including a 7-0 record in Hamilton, while allowing just 14.2 points per game. Mosca enjoyed his second CFL All-Star nod that season as well. The Tiger Cats smoked Ottawa in the first game of the two-game playoff by a score of 45 to nothing, one of the most lopsided playoff victories in CFL history. After the second match, 
with the Ticats playing foot off the pedal and losing by 17 points, Hamilton was ready for another great cup appearance against not the Winnipeg Blue Mountains, but the BC Lions. The Columbia Lions for the opening of the 1963 Grey Cup game. Joe Capps, BC Lions. And Angelo Mosca's reputation was just about to shift into fourth gear. This has been Truly the Goats, an inclusive medium production. We'd like to thank our guest, Travis Curra of the Two and Out CFL podcast. That's number two, A-N-D, out. And Josh Smith of the Hamilton Tiger Cats podcast, Podski Wee Wee, spelled exactly how it sounds. Extra material, show notes, blog posts, and other related stuff on the greatest of all time are available on our website at trulythegoats.com. On Facebook and Twitter, find us at trulythegoats. For more Inclusive Medium podcast and video productions, visit us at inclusivemedium.com. Next time on Truly the Goats, part two of Angelo Mosca, greatest heel of all time. I'm Oz Davis, thanking you for listening to Truly the Goats. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sports 
HistoryNetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to SportsHistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.